0: Oh, (laughs) not quite yet. Oh, well, it's good to see you all. I know the context of these tables is a little awkward. And whenever I go to a conference and there's tables like this, it drives me nuts because I I usually end up sitting at some place where the table's not right to write, right? You know, so I end up having to sit, you know, like in the front, like Barbara's having to do here. So if you don't want to sit on the side of your chair and your neck eventually hurt, go ahead and stand up now get your chair aimed right this direction and get comfortable because uh, there's no reason to not be comfortable. So, and thank you, Harry, for not, you know, uh, getting too upset at at the rabble here that uh, wants to go back to Egypt. We, we understand you're it's not your fault. it's not your fault you've made that you've made that very clear it's not your fault. <laughs> Yesterday, I was jogging, and um, I usually got music going, and I'm sort of in another world, which really helps, so I'm not thinking about the fact that I can't breathe, but I'm jogging along this country road, and there's a um all of a sudden, something happened that, that jerked my mind from wherever it was to the moment. And that was, uh, I was looking around, it was like a fields, and I was just sort of enjoying the, the trees and the field. And I looked down, and there was this snake that was like literally, I mean, one or two feet, no, nah, nah, three or four feet from me. But I mean, I was running to it, and it was wiggling right across my path. And I literally, like, did, did a little jump when I saw it, and I, it, that sort of changed what I was thinking about. And I began to just sort of run in my mind uh, of all the snakes that we see in the Bible. And I thought it was kind of neat that Chuck talked about the bronze serpent today, because that's that was one of the ones. But So let's just do a little pop quiz here. Let's just chase snakes through the Bible. And tell me, uh, just sort of tell me out loud where some snakes are in the Bible. Genesis, that's a good one. That's like the number one snake, isn't it? What's that? Brood of vipers. You know, that's one I hadn't thought about, but that works. That works. Okay, what's another one? Garden of Eden, all right, we said that. That's okay. Moses, all right, Moses with the bronze serpent, but also, are you thinking of another one? Or is that the one you're thinking of? The, remember with the, the magicians, the Egyptian magicians, the snake, okay. Paul, all right, double jeopardy if you can tell me where that happened. Malta, someone give an extra donut over here to table number five. Exactly. All right, good. Paul also had another experience with a snake. This one's a whole lot more subtle, but those who have been with me to Philippi might remember. Where's Dave? Dave, are you in the class? I'm going to make you stand up and say it. Okay, Dave, stand up. Let's hear it. (laughs) Well, remember when Paul was at Philippi... He had this confrontation with this, with this possessed girl who had a spirit of divination, and she did not have a snake around her neck. But, but we talked about the fact that uh, in, the, in the original language, Luke says that she had a spirit of python, and which points to Delphi's python or the oracle that happened at Delphi. So that's, that's, that's really subtle. You still get points just for standing up. So thanks. But no donut. <laughs> you can have the donut hole, how's that? Okay, uh, there's still, still another one that hasn't been mentioned, at least one. Revelation. Revelation, okay. What, what's said in Revelation about snakes? The great old serpent. Yes, the, the Satan or the devil, the serpent of old which gives huge context to all the snakes in the Bible. There's actually another one. Uh, remember the king in the Old Testament named Nahash? Nahash? He was the one that went to Jabesh Gilead and said, hey, we're going to you know, poke out your eyes, and, 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 and King Saul came and rescued Jabesh Gilead. Well, Nahash means snake. So there's a lot of snakes throughout the Bible, and every single time, every single time, there is a snake in the Bible. God wins. Every single time you see it happen, God wins. And the revelation mention of, of the serpent, the, the devil, is gives color or, or gives context to all the snakes because there is this sense of uh, that the snake has come to represent evil. And so when that snake ran across my path while I was running, I thought about the fact that you know, we've got snakes in the world. We still have snakes in the world. We still have evil. And we've even got snakes coiled around our own hearts. I was, uh, yesterday also, I was actually driving in to a certain neighborhood that I go through every time I'm going to get a haircut. And I noticed last month or a couple months ago when I was driving through this neighborhood, a really nice sports car that was making a U-turn. It was parked sort of sideways and it was this white, like Corvette, and it was just shining bright. It was really pretty. So I, I noticed it because I was driving along, I thought, wow, that's a really nice car. And I was driving along, and then I came to a stoplight, and it made a U-turn, and I saw it start to make a U-turn, and I turned, and I was looking at something else, and I turned as it passed me, and it was black. It wasn't white. And I thought, I'm, I'm either losing it, or I'm losing it. And I looked in my rearview mirror, and turns out what happens is he had painted half the car black and half the car white. I mean, with a fine line right down the middle. It's like this this person really wanted, just couldn't decide, I guess. I, I want a black car and I want a white car. So, But I mean, from one perspective, it looked absolutely black. From another perspective, it looked absolutely white. And once again, I thought that is us because sometimes we when we come to church I mean we're showing all the white side aren't we hey look look at my nice white Corvette look at my Corvette heart I mean it is nice and white but the reality is as soon as we leave here and we fight over where we're going to have lunch we're showing the black side of our the dark side of our hearts we have snakes wrapped around our own hearts. There is a part of our nature that is fallen. And yet there is also a, uh, a new nature within us, given to us by the Holy Spirit when we believe in Jesus, that wars against that, that snake, as it were, or against that evil that we still have within us. I just love every time I read it, Paul's words in Romans 7, where he says that he himself, as a believer, says he struggles and he he does he even says i do not understand why i do what i don't want to do and the solution of course to that problem is in the very next chapter romans 8 where the holy spirit comes along and helps us in our weakness so all of that leads us into leviticus 26 leviticus chapter 26 and i'm pleased to tell you that today is our final message in Leviticus. No, hold your applause. Final message in Leviticus. And I had to laugh last week as Barnabas was sharing when he would give Bibles to people. He says that he never gives them like the whole Bible because they'll start at the beginning and they get to Leviticus and they stop. And as soon as he said that, Gail, where are you, Gail? Gail, I saw Gail turn around and look at me. And I wasn't sure if she was saying, see, or if she was saying, hey. It's, it's, it's okay. Today, as we were walking in, Jack also tells me, hey, we're we in Leviticus again today? Yes, yes, we are. But one, just one more time, Jack, and then we're done. God is our Father, and that is not just. one one of his many names. This is his role. This is his responsibility. And as our father, he has the responsibility to provide for us. He has the responsibility to protect us and to correct us. In Leviticus 26, we see God laying down the law for his children as, as the Israelites become a nation. And we're going to read the specifics for them and then get some general timeless truths for us. So look at Leviticus 26, right in verse 1. "'You shall not make for yourselves idols, nor shall you set up for yourselves an image or a sacred pillar, nor shall you place a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord.'" If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, then I shall give you rains in their season so that the land will yield its produce and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. Indeed, your threshing will last for you until grape gathering and grape gathering will last until sowing time. You will thus eat your food to the full and live securely in your land." And it goes on to all the things that God will do if they obey, if they obey. I read about a place up in New Jersey where people were flocking to see a tree stump because it, the, the, the article I said said that the tree stump had the form of the Virgin Mary on it, and it was a divine sign of hope for that poor neighborhood. Um, Some years ago in Jersey City, there was word of an image of Mary on a freezer door in a neighborhood supermarket, and people were flocking to that supermarket. And I mention these to say just to show who we are as people, that we are hungry to connect with the supernatural. We are hungry if we could get even more basic, we're hungry to connect with God on some level, any level. And it is a whole lot easier to be a mystic than it is to be biblically literate. We've got a word from God. We've got a Bible. We've got the complete revelation, all that God wants us to know we have in our laps. In addition, we've also got general truths outside of this special revelation. We've got general revelation in the beautiful earth that we live on. In fact, Paul tells us that that's revelation too, that it, we see God's invisible attributes and his divine nature through what has been made, so much so that we are without excuse when we say that we don't believe in God or that we don't want to connect with God. God made a promise to his people based on his word, and he said to them, you don't make any other idols, you don't seek any other images, you don't flock to any other tree stumps, you just come to me. And he said, if you will obey me, I will bless you. And he gave some very specifics. The reason he set it up this way is because they're still at Mount Sinai here, they haven't entered the promised land yet, and they're going there. And when they live in the promised land, God is preparing them for what it's going to be like because they've never been in a land like Canaan before. They can remember the stories of Abraham who came from Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia had a couple of great rivers. What were they? Tigris and Euphrates. I mean, you didn't lack for water if you lived in the Fertile Crescent. It was fertile for that reason because of the Tigris and Euphrates. Water was not a problem. So they worshiped the sun. No need to worship you know, the rain god, because we got all the water we need. Then, the, uh, those who came out of Egypt that we're reading about here in Leviticus, they also had a big river. What was it? The Nile. Exactly. Once again, no need to trust a god, any god for water, because you got all the water you need in the Nile. All you got to do is drink it. But when they went to Canaan, now the, the local deity was Baal and Baal was the god of rain. Why would that be? Because Canaan needed rain. It had no Tigris or Euphrates. I mean, all it had, the little Jordan River. If you see the Jordan River today, particularly during the summer or the end of the summer, I mean, a good running jump, and you could clear the thing. But back in that day, Jordan River was a little more significant. Sea of Galilee, obviously, was a huge reservoir. But unless you lived around those little places of water... Canaan had nothing except springs here and there, and even that depended on rain. We won't look at it, but God told his people in the book of Deuteronomy, I am taking you to a land that is not like where you came from, uh, where there was plenty of water, and you're going into a land that gets its water from heaven. And so he tells them here in Leviticus, if you obey me, I'll make it rain and you'll have all you need. And he goes through all the blessings. Boom, 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 boom. He lists them out and says, if you obey, I will bless you. And so God basically puts them in a land that requires faith. That's not a lot different than your life, is it? God has not put you in the Garden of Eden. God has not put you by the Tigris and Euphrates, as it were, in the sense that you don't have to trust God for water or for your your basic needs. We do have to trust him. And God often rigs our lives to be right on the edge. We feel like we're right on the edge of our means, whether it's emotionally, financially, relationally, sometimes even spiritually. God keeps us in a place of tension, not because he's frustrated with us or doesn't love us, because that keeps us close to him. It is an act of love, it's not an act of anger. Remember, God is our Father. For obedience, he sends rain. Let's look further what he does. Verse 11. Look down at verse 11. He says, Moreover, I will make... uh, That's right. Yeah, that's right. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you would not be their slaves and I broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. The New International Version says, I made you walk with your heads held high. There was dignity. I gave you dignity. And God promises here spiritual blessing. So there's the physical blessing of rain and plenty of food, and there's also a promise of spiritual blessing that God's going to be with them. So here's a principle that we can pull from the text that is true. And those of you who are hypersensitive to the prosperity gospel, just hang with me for a minute. I'm with you, okay? We're on the same team, but I wanna give you this principle and consider it because it's true. And here's the first principle God promises to bless His people for their obedience. God promises to bless His people for their obedience. And remember the bigger context of Leviticus. The bigger context in Genesis 1 and 2, Moses wrote Leviticus. Moses also wrote Exodus and Genesis and Numbers and Deuteronomy. This is all the law of Moses or the books of Moses. And in Genesis 1 and 2, as we've talked about with the snake jumping in there, God created animals. And it says that he blessed them. And he told them, be fruitful and multiply. To the man and the woman, it says he blessed them and said be fruitful and multiply fill the earth subdue it and rule then god blessed the seventh day and he created the world that he might bless the world what does it mean to bless all this blessing in the first in the creation account it means that god gives something good because of who he is his gracious character he blesses and he created us to need and receive god's blessings we were created to receive god's blessings But chapter 3, enter the snake, enter sin, enter the curse. The curse now takes away, as it were, God's blessing. Because God blesses, but then when there's sin involved, God curses, which is simply a removal of the blessing. So as Genesis proceeds, God starts over with Noah, and we're told God blesses him. And then with Abraham, we have more of the word blessing in the context of Abraham there in Genesis chapter 12, then with all of the rest of Genesis prior to that. There's so much blessing poured into this promise that through Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. So our text today to Israel was a conditional promise based on the unconditional promise to Abraham. In other words, God promised to Abraham and to his people that he's going to bless them no strings attached. The blessing is going to happen. But now the, the Mosaic covenant, which is what we are reading of in the thick of here in Leviticus, is very much a conditional. He says, if you obey, I will bless you. So there is this, you know, this relationship between God and his people. You obey, I bless you. If you don't obey, as we're going to see here in a second, I will curse you. So with the underlying foundation of God promising to bless, there is also this this conditional aspect that says, if you obey me, uh, I will bless you in this particular way. Now keep your finger here in Leviticus and turn to the New Testament book of Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews 6. We'll be back in Leviticus in just a second. But Hebrews chapter 6. Of course, as believers today, we already are blessed with every spiritual blessing. Ephesians tells us that. We've got every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places through Christ. And God also blesses us materially according to our needs. And He promises to do this. But a lot of times the that our blessing occurs for obedience and just the natural outworking of life, sort of like the book of Proverbs says look, you live in a wise way, you're going to have good results generally speaking, but there are always exceptions, always exceptions. But, and Jesus says also his, uh, his wonderful promise is that I will reward you. In fact, he says in the last chapter of the Bible, behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every person according to what they've done. So even though We may not see the exact one-to-one relationship between our obedience and God's blessing. We are, in this life right now, we are told that when Christ comes, He will make it happen. And we turn to Hebrews chapter 6 to see the specific promise of that. Hebrews 6 verse 10. Love this verse. It says, For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward His name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And this also includes your spouse. This also includes your family. This also includes any good work that you are doing. God is not unjust to forget it. Interesting, we will forget it. We've done things, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago that we can't remember. God's not forgotten it. And we're going to have some wonderful surprises in glory when God says, you don't remember this, and I know you don't, but you know, back in 1981, you stopped and helped you know, an old lady change her tire or something, I don't know. But, uh, and here's, here's your reward for that. God's not going to forget it. All right, keep your place in, Le- in Hebrews, because we'll be back to Hebrews, but turn back to Leviticus. Turn back to Leviticus. Prosperity theology teaches... That if you do such and such for God, like live faithfully, like give a $1,000 or whatever, God will make you healthy and wealthy. It's like they've actually nailed it down what that blessing is going to be. And often they'll point to Old Testament passages like this that say, if you obey, I will bless you. I mean, there it is, right in the Bible. But our specific rewards may be coming later. But think about also the, the places in the Old Testament context, like Job. Nobody more righteous during Job's time but Job. Look what happened to that guy. You telling me God, God blesses obedience. In fact, this was the problem Job's friends had with it. They said, look, God blesses obedient people. Look at your life. You're obviously in sin. And that wasn't the case. Also, think about Christ no more righteous person ever walked the face of the earth, and look how Christ was treated. The apostles, every one of them, with the possible exception of John, went to a martyr's death. So to say that God gives health and wealth and prosperity, as it were, to those who are in his will and follow him just doesn't line with the Bible, and it doesn't line with the reality. The blessing was for Israel in their land, and that particular blessing was rain. But here's a part of the the text the prosperity preachers usually leave out. Look down at verse 14 of Leviticus 26. God says, but if you do not obey me, And do not carry out all these commandments, if instead you reject my statutes and if your soul abhors my ordinances so as not to carry out all my commandments and so break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption, and fever that will waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. Also you will sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies will eat it up. I will set my face against you so that you will be struck down before your enemies, and those who hate you will rule over you, and you will flee when no one is pursuing you. If also after these things you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. I will also break down your pride of power. I will also make your sky like iron and your earth like bronze. And then it goes on to say that you're not going to have any crops. For the sky to be like iron and the earth like bronze, what does that mean? No rain. Yeah, we got some iron skies now in Texas, don't we? I mean, there's nothing up there but just this iron shade of hot. And for the earth to be like bronze, it means that it's hard. It's crusty. Yeah, this is a a Texas summer he's warning them against. He says, if you don't obey me, it's going to be just like, you know, Frisco, Texas in July 2023. God set up a system a lot like our parents did. And it's a system that worked. Your parents said it to you. My parents said it to me. If you obey me, Wayne, things are going to be great. I'll bless you. If you don't obey me. And usually the finger comes out at this point. Then we will will not get along until you repent, and then things will be good again. This was God's plan. So it's a package deal. You can't just preach the blessings and not preach the curses. It's a package deal. Now, stay, keep your spot in Leviticus. Turn back to Hebrews, but look at chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. This is our last jaunt elsewhere. Hebrews chapter 12 gives us a Christian perspective on the same principle we're seeing here in Leviticus. We can't have selective memories when it comes to God's Word. We can't treat God's Word like a buffet. Say, you know what, I'm going to camp on this part of it that I like, but this other part that I don't like, I'm going to sweep it under the rug. It's a package deal. Imagine if you went to a buffet and you had to eat everything. Ew. That's like, as long as the buffet doesn't have green bean casserole, we'll be okay. But most do, I have discovered. It's a package deal. <laughs> Hebrews 12, verse 4. Look at what the author says here. Hebrews 12, verse 4. You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation, which is addressed to you as sons. And here's the exhortation. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Verse 9. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of our spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, I seem best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. So the purpose of God's discipline, both in Leviticus, which you can turn back to, and and in the New Testament perspective from our relationship with the Lord now is that God disciplines us as our Father who loves us. God disciplines us, and he promises to do so, not because that he's angry or he's embarrassed, but he does it because he loves us, and he realizes that without discipline, we're not going to turn. We're going to stay stubborn. We're going to keep taking God for granted, and unless God gets involved and shakes us out of our stupor, we will take God's blessings all the way to the grave. So he gets involved. He is not a a, a deistic God that just sort of created the world and sat back and watches it and wrings his hands going, oh, what have I done? He is a God who created the world good, and he gets involved and he is involved in our lives on a daily basis. He answers prayer. In fact, I'd love to know what store you went to and what aisle that lady's on, because I need to go talk to that lady. I've got some outstanding prayers as well, as do you. But uh, we'll trust the Lord for those things, and that's part of the the struggle, part of the journey. And he uses the example of earthly fathers. We can easily remember when our parents did it wrong. When we usually think about discipline, we can think of a number of examples when our father went too far or our mother went too far or the horrible things that they said to us, all of which may be true. But even with their weaknesses, they also did, did it right a few times. And we can see the value of their discipline in our lives and their love for us in disciplining us, even though they, they blew it. They did it imperfectly. And this is the point that the author is making in Hebrews. He says, they, our fathers disciplined us for a time and we respected them. Our flawed parents disciplined us. Now, what about our heavenly father who has no flaws? When he allows these challenges and these struggles into our lives to come for discipline, we need to not reject the Lord because we understand that it's because he loves us. Here in Leviticus, um, if you look at verse 16 and 17, we're not going to read all of this, but he just lists some examples of what's going to happen. Verse 16 and 17, terror, disease, fever, 18 through 20 is drought and poor harvest. Also, there's uh, the promise or the threat of wild beasts, foreign invaders. Finally, they're going to be taken away to another land. And then the Lord says, and if after all this you don't repent, I'm going to up the ante even more. So the goal of this discipline is not just punishment. And I think often that's what we perceive that the goal of discipline is because that's often what we receive from our parents is that we finally frustrated them to the point of anger and they just unleashed on us rather than our Heavenly Father. He is patient, he is patient, he is patient. And and it's not that his patience comes to an end as much as he decides, I've got to intervene in the life of this wandering sheep or they're going to wander right off the cliff. And so God gets involved because he loves us. Several years ago, I was driving uh, home, parked in my parking spot there in the driveway, and got out of the car and I heard this sound. I mean, if Dante's level of hell had certain levels that I could imagine, a cat's incessant meowing would be one of them. And so I thought, well, there's a cat somewhere close. And I looked around and couldn't see a cat. And I thought, well, that cat's going to work it out. The next day, I drive home, park, get out close the door. I thought, okay, I got to find this cat because I'm not going to be able to live with this. Plus, obviously the cat's got a problem. And so I listened and and found that it was in my backyard. So I go in my backyard, I'm, I'm going around the backyard and I'm standing at the fort, the fort that I built for my girls at the time, my daughter's, And I can hear it above me. And I look up, and it's in the tree right beside the fort. And it's like way up in this tree. It's this little cat. And it's looking down at me. I said, come down. Just come on down. No response. So I thought, oh, I got to get this cat out of the tree. So I go in. I put on a long sleeve shirt. I get a leather glove or two. And and I start climbing this tree to get the cat. And I get up there, and that cat starts going higher. Finally, I get up to it, and it now it's really going to town. And I grab it, and, of course, it's just all over me with its claws and its teeth. And it has no idea that I'm trying to help it. I want to just take it and, you know, throw it on the ground problem solved. But instead, I, I took it down, I took it outside my fence, and I sort of just let it go in the yard, and it scampered off to go bother somebody else. But I thought about, in time, I thought about, not immediately, this passage that we read about in Hebrews that talks about discipline is not pleasant, but it, 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 brings, it brings a process that eventually is the, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Here's the second principle that we can get from both Hebrews and Leviticus. God's discipline motivates repentance so that he may bless his people once again. God's discipline motivates repentance so that he may bless his people once again. God wants to bless us. He wants to bless our actions, but there's got to be some good actions to bless. God's not out to get us. He takes no delight in discipline, but he does take delight in the results of it because it causes us to repent. I don't know about you, but I've had periods in my life, sometimes they're moments, sometimes they're days, Sometimes back a long time ago, it was years, that I wasn't walking with God, and, and I sensed His hand. You know, and I think it's in Psalm 51 where David says, your hand was heavy on me. You just You just feel that the hand of God just almost pressing down on you. It's just His presence saying, I'm still with you, but I want you to know I need you to repent. There's just this sense of something's not right. Not just something, you know exactly what's not right. And the incredible weight that is lifted when you finally do repent. If you've ever done physical therapy, you know that it's brutal. I'm currently going through that process. As you can tell, I've not got my sling on, but I'm still trying to be very gingerly with my shoulder, which is in process of being healed. So right now I'm in four to six weeks of Passive physical therapy. You know what passive physical therapy means? It means they take your arm and pull it. You're not lifting anything. They are moving it. And sometimes they go a little far, but they actually do a great job. But physical therapy, there's no joy in it, but there's joy in the results of it. And I know that because my other shoulder four years ago went through the same process. It was a horrible experience, but now this shoulder works great, and I'm glad it does because it's carrying the load for this one that is struggling. Nobody likes discipline, but we all like the results of discipline. Look at verse 44 and 45. Leviticus 26, 44 and 45. Uh, I'm sorry, back up to verse 40. First verse 40. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers and their unfaithfulness which they have committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me, I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies, or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled, so, that, so then they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. I will remember also my covenant with Isaac my covenant with Abraham as well, and I will remember the land. For the land will be abandoned by them and will make up for its Sabbaths while it is made desolate without them. They, meanwhile, will be making amends for their iniquity because they rejected my ordinances and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, so, uh, so, nor will I uh, uh, so abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God, but I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God, I am the Lord. So again, God's purpose, God's discipline motivates repentance so that he might bless his people once again. God's relationship with Israel always, always was, restoration follows repentance. No repentance, no restoration. This is why when Jesus showed up on the scene, and his major message was at the beginning of his ministry, what was it? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You want the kingdom of heaven? You want restoration? Got to be repentance. This went all the way back to Leviticus, and and it was really developed in Deuteronomy, chapters 27 through 30, really developed there. But it's the same principle all throughout the Old Testament and even through the ministry of Christ. Well, the third principle we see from the text here is that the security of God's people is tied to the certainty of God's promises. The security of God's people is tied to the certainty of God's promises. Notice the Lord said, "Uh, I'm not going to forget my covenant with Abraham. Even though they're disobedient to me, I'm not going to forget it. And when they repent, then I'm going to kick back in the blessings, bring them back into the land. But until they do, they're going to know my discipline so that they will repent. The security of God's people is tied to the certainty of God's promises. And if we were to turn to Romans chapter 8, we would see the same thing in our lives. That Paul says, I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And that's all rooted in God's grace to us. It has nothing to do with us, which the next three chapters after that go on to show. Israel was unfaithful, Romans 9 through 11, but God will not abandon Israel because he's made covenants with them. Thank goodness, because that tells that we're also secure. The security of God's people is tied to the certainty of God's promises. God keeps his word which leads us into Leviticus 27. We're going to look at a couple of verses here, but this will help us close out the book. Look at the first two verses of chapter 27. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man makes a difficult vow, he shall be valued according to your valuation of persons belonging to the Lord. Well, that's clear, isn't it? (laughs) Oh, sometimes our cultures are not friends to us. It's basically saying when you make a vow, when you make a promise, and here it's said a difficult vow, meaning when you make a vow that's a big deal, when you make a vow that's difficult to keep, perhaps it was in the context of chapter 26 where God brought upon discipline and you basically said, Lord, if you get me out of this, I'll, you know, be a missionary in the Congo or whatever whatever your vow is and you realize you made a difficult vow and you realize I can't keep it, that there is something that that is so difficult that I need to basically say, God, what do I do? I've made a difficult vow and I cannot keep this vow. There was a valuation or a monetary value placed upon that particular vow, and you could pay that instead. And it was big. I mean, this wasn't any cheap cost. Like if you looked at verse three, if you had vowed, like, for example, yourself or a person, if your valuation is of the male from 20 years even to 60 years, the valuation shall be 50 shekels of silver. You know what? A shekel of silver is like a month's wages. So that's like four years' salary you're paying because you made this vow to God that you're not going to be able to keep. The goal was don't make rash vows, or it's really going to cost you. It's sort of like when the IRS decides sees you trying to pull money out of your retirement account before, before it's time. They want to slap a big penalty on you. The, the, no. the, the motive there is discouraging you to do it. It's sort of the same idea here with God. God wants uh, us to keep our word because God keeps his word. God keeps his word. The covenants will never be abandoned. Chapter 27, now we keep our word. Don't make rash vows. And if you do make a rash vow, you need to make good on it somehow. So we're not going to read the details of this, but that's basically what the whole chapter is. It gives lots of examples. Um, uh, Just in summary, if someone dedicates himself, his family, his animals, his home, his property, in every case, there's a value of money given, and it wasn't cheap to keep your word. A couple of weeks ago, I was pulling into the parking lot of uh, the hospital where my surgeon on my shoulder is has his office, and I was going in for the checkup. It was the checkup basically where I get to take my sling off my arm. And I'm pulling off the street, the main street, into the parking lot and driving down the hospital has sort of a main road with little feeder roads off where you park. And so I'm driving down the main road, I mean, I don't know, 10, 15 miles an hour, whatever you do in a parking lot. And all of a sudden, I look to my right, and there's this car coming right at me. I thought, well, surely she's going to stop. And I honked my horn, and i mean, crunch. And I had this this vision, uh, this moment, this memory, I should say, you know like when uh, you at an entertainment park or a theme park in the bumper cars where the intent is to hit people? By the way, that's a really good way to work off aggression if you, if you need to do that. I would love it. I'd put whoever I was wanting to really nail in the car up there, and I'd just kind of get my wheel ready. When the, when the juice laid on, you just boom and let them have it on purpose, and you could see people coming right at you, and it was all in fun. That's what this car looked like. I mean, it went out of its way to hit me. It it was such a strange experience. And so, I mean, nobody got hurt, airbags didn't even go off. But I mean, even if you're going 15 miles an hour, to stop suddenly makes you really grateful for seatbelts. And I got out and the, the lady gets out of the car and asked, you know, I could tell she's like, I don't know, 13 months pregnant, she's huge. And I said, are you okay? And she says, yes, yes, I'm fine. And I, in a nice way, kind of asked, what in the world were you thinking? And she just basically said she wasn't. So I, I don't know the, the ins and outs of it all, but a couple of times I asked her, I said, you know, I'm gonna need to see your insurance uh, for this. And so she kind of hemmed and hawed and said something else. And the second time I said, uh, ma'am, I need to see your insurance before we part ways. And she said, well, I don't have any insurance. And I, I thought, oh, great, because this is not the first time that this has happened, and it's a real hassle. And she says, but what we'll do is uh, let's go to my repair shop, like my repair shop, my repair shop right now, and we'll get it looked at, and I'll just pay for it, you know, in cash. And I said, well, I'm sorry, but Right now, I have a doctor's appointment, which is why I'm here. I didn't come here so you could hit me so we could go to your repair shop. So anyway, I said, give me your number. I got my number. Text me so I know it actually works. Yep, okay, that's your actual cell phone. And so I went to my doctor, and he actually checked out my arm to make sure because it it hurt when she hit me. But everything's okay. And turns out, uh, I get an estimate done. I send it to her. And she says, well, I've got to go see this repair shop for myself because this is just too much. So she goes up there and turns out, well, you know, the estimate was accurate. And when that happened, she all of a sudden produced her insurance card. And so I call her insurance, and then the insurance tries to get a hold of her, and she is not responding. So thankfully, though, the insurance will take care of it, but she's not responding. And I just thought, we live in a day. And I actually asked the lady, I said, you told me you didn't have insurance. She says, well, I wasn't in my right mind. We live in a day where your word doesn't mean a lot, does it? Someone's word doesn't mean a lot. God requires we keep our word because our character represents his character. Look at the very last verse of Leviticus 27, the very last verse of the book. These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the sons of Israel at Mount Sinai. God was prepping his people to go into the land, and he gave them the Bible to do it. It doesn't take a lot for us to realize that he's done the same thing in our lives. God's surprising approach to helping us grow involves giving us his word and his promise that he wants to bless us for our obedience. But when we are disobedient, he also promises to discipline us, that we'll repent so that he can bless us again. And ultimately, thankfully, the security of God's people, us, is tied to the certainty of God's promises. It's been a good book. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, I'll probably never do it again. Let's pray. Father, thanks for the journey through this uh, seldom-traveled road of Leviticus. And uh, we're thrilled that you have given us timeless truths in it, that we're able to read this text, pull from it these truths that have been an encouragement to us these months as we've cross-referenced throughout the Scriptures and see the timeless truth that you applied in specific ways to the nation Israel. As we've looked specifically today at these principles of of blessings and curses, we know that we are not Israel. The United States is not a covenant nation. But you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing. The Lord Jesus has promised that he will not forget our work. Our obedience will be rewarded, whether in this life or the next. There is no, uh, no exception to that and so we're grateful. We ask for strength to keep going and persevere, and we also ask that you would help us, Father, to be men and women of our word, because you keep your promises, so we also can be people who keep ours. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Wayne. That was a blessing. We, we actually have learned quite a bit about Leviticus and uh, looking forward to numbers. <laughs> I hope you all have a wonderful week. I look forward to seeing everyone next week. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.